computer. This is data. I'm an android. I'm an basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. One of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. What is up, everyone? Tim here today as your host for the Lakers Exceptionalism podcast. Tom is not with us today. He will be back on Wednesday when we will be covering our expectations for the preseason, what we're really trying to figure out or see how things fit together in preseason, as well as concerns for the year as a whole. But today, it is just me doing a solo pod, and we are here to finish up that mailbag that Tom and I started last week on Friday during our last stream slash podcast Got a lot of questions, lots of good ones. I wanted to make sure we got to all of those, and uh, today is the perfect opportunity to do so. We are coming up to just less than, what, on Friday. It is Monday. On Friday, we get the Lakers' first preseason game. The Lakers only have, what is it, I think four preseason games, and then we get into the regular season. We have our Christmas games in like two and a half weeks, so things are moving moving fast. There's still a lot to figure out with this team and with the league as a whole. And we'll, some of the questions hit at some of those other potential teams, but let's just jump right into it. So one remaining question that we got around rotations or lineups from last time was from Sanjay, who asked, what do you see as our most productive lineup, even if it happens in a small sample size for this season? So this is something we sort of hit on last time, but I wanted to flesh it out a little bit more. Defensively, it really depends on who you're playing. If you're playing the Warriors or the Nets or the Clippers or the Nuggets, you're going to have different defensive lineups out there to match what the other team has. And I think the fact that this answer isn't a specific five guys like it might be for many other teams tells you just what sort of place the Lakers are in defensively this year. They have more than five options. They have more than five best defenders. And they can really play that chess match. They don't have to try to play checkers on defense. And we know this coaching staff is willing to do that. So I don't know if we're playing the Clippers, it might be someone like might be, I don't know, Caruso, Matthews, LeBron, AD and Markeith. If we're playing the Warriors, maybe we have KCP in there instead of Matthews. Uh, If you're playing the Nets, it could look different as well. So there are a lot of different ways to look at that. I think offensively, it might be more straightforward and what I see as a very productive offensive lineup that we may not see as much of in the regular season in the playoffs. We might see more of it is the Lakers going small, but instead of just having Markeith out there offensively, because I'm thinking pure offense right now, instead of having Markeith, let's have Wes Matthews out there provide similar shooting, but is more of a guy you can run off of screens and do a little bit more of as a movement shooter uh, or an off screen shooter that adds a bit of gravity. He's someone that you can run in different parts of different sets. So I like him in there. Obviously, LeBron, obviously, Anthony Davis. We're going to have KCP for his great shot making and his ability to be moving around and spacing the floor. And then we're going to put Dennis Schroeder in there. I would rather have Schroeder along with this group than a Caruso. I would rather have Schroeder in there than a Kuzma. Schroeder is someone who, if you use this lineup, the best you can. Schroeder someone that can have the ball in his hands or be off ball operating in different ways. And actually the very next question digs into this. And, and Stephen Kirk asks, if Schroeder does indeed start, how do you see him fitting with LeBron in that lineup? Also, will playing off the ball more benefit LeBron if it's the, if it is the case? And so this hits back at that last question where you might have a LeBron, AD, Schroeder, in this case, KCP and Matthews. In most cases, if you're looking at the starting lineup, it might be more Schroeder, KCP, LeBron, AD, Gasol, or Harrell. How Schroeder fits in, I think you can look at it a couple of ways. In, in general, we are going to hear so much this year of, oh, he lightens the burden. That's going to be the characterization anytime he shoots the ball. Um, and that's true. Schroeder and and the, the, his ability to play make and score will lighten the burden, the, the load of responsibility, not just as a scorer, but as a playmaker for LeBron James this upcoming season. Same with Anthony Davis. But... I think there are three key basketball ways that I see Schroeder fitting in with LeBron and and we can kind of theorize about how those might look. So the first would be on ball. Schroeder's got the ball in his hands. You let through this, you let LeBron play off ball as a cutter running off of screens to get him attacking downhill. You can, you can use him. I mean, finishing dump offs, probably not the best way to use LeBron. 
Um, but LeBron's gravity and what he's able to do to bend a defense towards him should make life easier for Schroeder on ball. Um, you don't always just want LeBron standing around, but if he is standing around, he's conserving some energy, that's fine. But if we're using LeBron as a cutter or running off of screens to try to attack downhill or operating in handoffs with Schroeder where he's giving the ball to Schroeder, those are really potentially dangerous actions for a defense that are difficult to guard. And Schroeder provides us the first opportunity other than Rajon Rondo last season to really get LeBron operating off ball, which we know he can be so deadly in. Uh, LeBron just sprinting to the rim, jumping and, and finishing a lob or getting a putback off of a miss. Those are things that we saw a little bit less of last season just due to the playmaking around LeBron from the guard position. But this year, with Schroeder able to do that, we'll see it more than in just very specific set plays where like Alex Crusoe is throwing a lob to LeBron or something like that. So one is on ball. Number two, off ball. And and, and this is, again, thinking about Schroeder. So an example that we talked about, what, one, two streams ago, I think, two pods ago, uh, would be having Schroeder run from, we're going to say this is like a horn set where you have LeBron's got the ball at the top. We're going to have Montrez Harrell and Anthony Davis at the elbows, and we're going to put Schroeder and KCP in the corners. If you lift Schroeder up to the wing and then he runs from wing to wing, one side to the other, we'll say from left to right, and he's running off of screens at both of those elbows from those two big men, this is called an Allen Iverson cut, an AI cut, where you're running laterally, and the goal here would be to get him the ball and let him turn that corner. And as he's making that cut, I would be having KCP run corner to corner, keep his man occupied and make it make sure that there's no low man to ta- to essentially go over and help if Schroeder is to turn that corner. So this is a super simple action, something I've drawn into playbooks that I've given to college teams. Um, like I've taught this to high school kids, run that AI cut with KCP running corner to corner behind it, try to get him that ball, let him turn the corner. But if he doesn't turn the corner, why this is good, why this is helpful is it is still an action that will demand the defense's attention. And if the defense doesn't give it the proper attention, it should be open. It should be a goal, uh, a, a score. But if they do give it good attention and let's say he's running off of a screen from AD right before he's he has the opportunity to get the ball. AD's man's probably going to take a step or two over to try to make sure he can't turn that corner, either stepping backward or stepping laterally over. And if that's the case, then you have Anthony Davis immediately after setting that screen for Schroeder go to set a ball screen for LeBron James. Suddenly we have a LeBron AD action, a ball screen that we know can be so deadly, uh, but you only have one defender in that action instead of two. It's not a two-on-two, it's a two-on-one with our two best offensive players looking to attack. So that might help get LeBron downhill so much more so than if you were to just run a LeBron AD pick and roll by itself. So little actions like that, that have synergies where they put a player in a position to succeed, a position to score at the same time or immediately before you try to run an action with LeBron or AD or both of them. That is something that softens the defense and should really, really help things out. You can, this is the same idea as running split cuts or flare screens or different things when LeBron's posting up or running a pick and roll or isolating from the perimeter. If you can take take help defense away from stopping LeBron and LeBron can truly play one-on-one, which we didn't see a whole lot last season in the playoffs. Same with AD. A lot of his post-ups weren't one-on-one. It was like one-on-two-and-a-half or one-on-one-and-a-half. If you can make it a one-on-one situation, LA has the guns to put up a lot of points efficiently on a lot of different defenses. So running an action like that makes a lot of sense, should be really helpful. I am really hoping we see that. The third way you can use Schroeder is off-ball, like like we talked about in the last example, but just as a floor spacer, not really moving around, more taking advantage of his ability to catch and shoot from three. Uh, get, when his feet are set, he's not as good off of movement, but if you can plop him in the weak side corner and he can catch and shoot, great. I, I think that's less exciting. It lowers the ceiling for what you're able to do with him. And in having him in that position as opposed to KCP or Wes Matthews or somebody else, for the most part, among guys who have comparable shooting ability, it's, I guess, a smaller role for Schroeder than his skill set would potentially enable. Like, he's able to attack the rim. He's able to play make. He's able to, you know, catch at the elbow or catch at the wing and, and dribble downhill, attack a closeout. He can do a lot more than just that. So 
not the most exciting way, but you can use him that way. I'm sure we'll see plenty of it. The same as we'll see opposite with LeBron standing around off ball while shooters on ball. So those are the three different ways. That second way was the most exciting, um, whether it's getting shooter attacking downhill off of screens or running a, a flare screen action with him where he's using an off ball screen, but not really needing to sprint too much. If you, if you can keep it to uh, more stationary shooting looks for him, those pin in flare screens, those sorts of things pressure the defense in ways more than just a shooter standing around does and should make life easier for LeBron and Anthony Davis on the court. So great question. The next question we have was from Nair. He asks, how does the Gasol Harrell rotation work? And does the Schroeder Caruso point guard uh, change according to the center on the floor? That's an interesting question and something I hadn't quite uh, looked as much into until I got this question. So there are a couple ways to look at this. So Caruso is a better, simple pick and roll read passer. He's he's not as much the guy you run a high ball screen with and hope that he's able to snake that pick and roll, keep the guy in his back, have your roll man going. Oh, there's a tag on him. So the weak side corner guys open. Oops. But actually the weak side wings defenders sunk down to the corner. So really it's the weak side wing that's open. He's not as much that guy. He is run a pick and pop. If the pops open, he gets the ball there. If not, He's probably not pressuring the rim. Maybe the action's over. Uh, don't want to underplay what Caruso can do, but you want to keep him within situations that are better for his current skill set. And if he's able to expand this game, it really helps what Caruso can add offensively to the team. But in general, he's more simple pick and roll read passer, whereas Schroeder can make those more complex reads. So for that reason, if you put Caruso with Harrell and Harrell can't pop, that takes away some of those more simple simple passes. Whereas with Schroeder, he can just kind of pair with a, a pop man, a roll man. Whatever you need to do works with Dennis Schroeder in terms of a pick and roll partner. So Caruso, for that reason, pairs better with Gasol than he does with Harrell. Another reason Caruso is a better pairing with Gasol than with Harrell is that Gasol and his playmaking ability, especially from, let's say, the high post, he could do it from the low post. You'd prefer it to be at the high post at this stage in his career because if he's doing it from the low post, you're probably also signing off to him taking a bunch of post shots. And that's not ideal offense for Marcus in 2020, 2021. So let's say Marcus is the high post. He's a playmaker. You're running split cuts or off screen actions. Caruso is a better cutter than Schroeder. And Caruso is a pretty good, smart cutter and the type of guy that Gasol, I'm sure, would love playing with. Same with the West Matthews. So those are two guys specifically when they're with Gasol out on the court or with LeBron as a low post playmaker, those are the types of two man combos or three man combos that I see as being really interesting and having a lot of synergy as opposed to Gasol Schroeder doesn't have as much synergy in those Gasol as a playmaker situations. Now Schroeder can still shoot off of those simpler uh, moving a little bit less sorts of screens, but from a cutting standpoint, I really like that Gasol Caruso pairing. And that would be particularly interesting in lineups that don't have LeBron or, or Schroeder on the court. So if, if Caruso is the primary ball handler, you probably run, want to run more sets where you take advantage of Gasol's passing from stationary positions. So overall, I honestly, I don't really care too much about basing the point guard off of the center or vice versa. But I think when putting together that big logic puzzle of a rotation map like we did on the last pod, you do want to look at what those synergies could be and what you can really tap into with two or three or four or five man combinations because basketball is basketball, but there are so many, you really want to make more out of the group of guys together cohesively than you would just by taking their five skill sets um, just in general and trying to stack them on top of each other. So for that reason, I like Caruso Gasol more than I like Caruso Harrell. I like Schroeder with either of those two. Um, so I think you might try to find some Caruso Gasol combo minutes, but it's not the highest of priorities when building that, uh, rotation map, but that this is now making me want to go back and look and see how many of those minutes that I actually build into my proposed rotation that I did the other day. And if you haven't played around with it already, go check out my Twitter, go find that free tool. You can go in there are like, I think 10 tabs, 15 tabs where you can go in and make your own rotation map where you say, okay, from the nine minute mark to the six minute mark of the third quarter. These are the five guys I want on the court in these positions. And you do that for the whole game and it, it'll it add up 
who's playing when, how much they're playing, what the, your most used lineups are. It'll tell you, oh, shoot, Tim, you don't have any rim protectors on the court. Or Tim, you have uh, only one of LeBron and AD on the court. So just little indicators to help uh, you solve that really complex puzzle. Go check that out if you haven't. Getting to the next question, Showtime 2 asks, what might it look like if LA went to a nine-man rotation? So let's think about it. If the Lakers are running a nine-man rotation, let's assume this is, this is in the playoffs only. I, I see no reason for LA to run a nine-man rotation in the regular season. That, that should not be the case unless there's a bunch of uh, lots of guys out with COVID or injuries or something. Hopefully, we do not run into a situation like that. But in the playoffs, we'll say we're running a nine-man rotation. If that were to be the case, what would that situation be? And for me, considering I was already running a 10-man rotation for what I was planning out, I think if you were to cut it down to nine, the reason for that would be probably, I'd say most likely, there are other options, but most likely what that looks like is cutting Gasol out. If he's somebody that's being picked on and you were facing, we'll say you're facing uh, Portland and they're running a lot of ball screens. And you don't want to be doing deep drops on those ball screens with Dame Lillard because as we know, and as we talked about during the playoffs, and as we saw the Lakers appropriately respond to, Dame is able to hit those pull-up threes really well if you are running drop coverage. So you can't keep that big man sag deep into the paint when running ball screens for Dame Lillard. Because of that, you have to play more aggressive screen coverages, which is something Montrezl Harrell can do. It's something AD can do. It's something Markeith Morris can do. But it's not so much the type of thing that Marcus Saul is really cut out for. So. The situation I'm envisioning is playing Portland, Gasol's out. You don't need Gasol for his post-defense as much for that series. And we are going to lean on the nine-man rotation of LeBron, AD, Schroeder, Caruso, KCP, Kuzma, Markeith Morris, Matras Harrell, and Wes Matthews. And between those nine guys, you're probably having a good number of players playing around 30 minutes in order to, to make that work. But I think it's still doable. We've seen other teams do it. That is the most plausible nine-man rotation that I can think of that we might realistically see this year. We got another question from Lake Show Brian, who asks about Trez's defense in the playoffs. Are AD and Gasol able to mitigate mitigate uh, how much Trez is a negative in the playoffs to some extent, or to what extent? So I look at this a couple of ways, and, and I've spoken about this on Twitter a bit. I've touched on it here or there on the podcast, but with Montrez Harrell, he... In general, I think there's a lot to look at with this situation. Last season in the playoffs, he or in, in general, for the whole season, he was a negative. He was a negative defender. He's been a negative defender. He, in the playoffs, was even more of a negative defender. And we saw him picked on at different points in time. We saw him in that Denver series, particularly be picked on in the post by Nikola Jokic, who Denver was scoring 1.4 points per possession when Jokic was in the post, Harrell was on him. And either from Jokic scoring or the Clippers needing to send a double team because Harrell couldn't handle him and then getting them getting wide open shots. That's the equivalent of letting Jokic shoot 70% in the post. And this was over 20 possessions. This wasn't like one here, one a game, two a game. This was more frequently than that. And think about the fact that of those, I think there were 21, 22 possessions. They were pretty much all in the first five games because as the series went on, the Clippers needed to just throw anybody else at Jokic. They, they tried Mo Harkless. They tried, oh no, I'm sorry, not Mo Harkless. They tried uh, Marcus Morris. They tried Kawhi Leonard. They tried Paul George. They were just throwing a lot. I think, no, I think they did try Harkless. They tried a bunch of different options. Uh, Ivica Zubats was obviously the, the top choice and he did the best against Jokic, but he couldn't be on him every minute of the game. So they that situation was a poor one for Tress. It was not a good reflection of him it was a bad situation for the Clippers because they didn't really adjust to that all that well. Um, we saw Trez be a negative in the playoffs and probably look worse than he truly was because the Clippers were running poor screen coverages against the teams they were playing. You can't play against Luka Doncic. Let's say like Dame Lillard, same thing. You can't be running those deep drop, drop, deep drop coverages against the guy who can burn you with pull-up threes. And it doesn't matter who your big man is. It could have been AD or it could have been Trez or it could have been me. The same shot's going to be open. You're always giving up that pull-up three as long as you're having that deep drop, unless your your guard defender is able to get over that ball screen and, and pressure that shooter enough. So it wasn't his fault. It was poor game planning. It was poor coaching. And we are not going to see that same sort of situation with the Lakers. We are not going to see Montrose Harrell's defense 
be as big of an issue for the Lakers as it was for the Clippers for a couple of reasons. First is positional fit. And, and also the, the front court he's playing with. He's not playing next to Marcus Morris or Jermichael Green or Mo Harkless as his front court partner, not as his three man, as his, as his power forward or as his center. Those were the players he was playing with. Those are not rim protectors. Keep in mind that Montrose Harrell and Ivica Zubats almost never played together last season. So Harrell was the sole rim protector on the court at all times when he played. AD and Gasol provide much better post defense and also rim protection. For those two reasons, those two areas are less of a demand for Harrell. He can play power forward along with AD, along with Gasol, and it slots him into a much better position to tap into his skill set because we should look at what Trez can do instead of what he can't do. And really what we saw with the Clippers was them ask him to do things he can't do. And if you're always looking at guys optimized, really the worst they can be optimized, that's not going to give you a fair assessment of truly what their talent levels are. If we think about what he can do, he's an excellent rotator. He's an excellent help rim defender. He is good at taking charges. And these are all things that instead of him being an anchor big like he was with the Clippers, if he can play power forward and he can be more off ball, not in the post as much against centers, not in ball screens as much in those one five ball screens. If he's on the perimeter defending stretch, you know, big men or occasionally in a ball screen um, and in a position off ball where he's able to go and help at the rim. If there's a drive, if, uh, you know, go take a charge, go block a shot, go rebound from the weak side, those sorts of things he can do very well. And from a role fit standpoint, him being a perimeter big instead of an anchor big fits so much better into what he can do positionally being a power forward instead of a center fits so much better of what he can do and fitting within the roster the Lakers ability to play him as a perimeter big and power forward is is really what's key here the the Clippers if they didn't play him uh as that center like you couldn't really play him as a power forward on that roster just with how it was constructed unless Evita Zubats is your big man all the time every game um or they had some you know not as appealing depth big man option. So for them, they felt it was the best way to put their their pieces together. But you got to let Trez do what he's good at. And you can slot him into a much better defensive position on this Lakers team. And because of that, I think we'll see much higher performance out of him this upcoming season. And I, I spoke about this before. If we look at the seasons in his career, he's been a power forward defensively instead of a center defensively. His defensive impact, looking at his defensive PIPM, was about average. He's I'm 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 on board with Trez as an average defender because he provides so much offensively. If he's a center and he's he's like losing you a point and a half to two points per hundred possessions, that is bad and that is hurtful and it makes it so overall his impact is much lower than it otherwise could be. And in the playoffs, when teams are picking on him instead of him getting you know one out of every five possessions he's picked on, it's one out of every three. That becomes even bigger of an issue. So slotted appropriately. I think he is a playoff player. I think he can play in the playoffs. I think the Lakers can make good use of him. Not just okay use of him. I think the Lakers can make really good use of him because he's not in an okay situation. He's leaving an awful situation, going to a great situation for him because he's playing with one of the few front court partners that both offensively and defensively matches at least what Harrell's able to do very, very well. And it'll be in a scheme that will be making the most of him. And I am just really excited to see that. Going back to the question, thinking about what AD and Gasol can mitigate uh, in terms of Trez's defense and, and the liabilities there, a lot of it's just playing him better. But because you have those guys, that allows you to play him better. Now, in the regular season, I expect to see Harrell playing center. We saw the Lakers not sign a center. We saw them sign Quinn Cook for their last roster spot. If they would have signed Dwayne Dedman or earlier in the playoffs, they would have added another big man to play center. I would have seen Harrell slotting into that power forward position and AD as the other power forward and then seeing uh, Gasol and then whoever that other big man would be playing the center position. But because of the current roster construction, my guess is we see Harrell and Gasol playing center in the regular season with AD playing power forward. Maybe Kuz gets a couple minutes here or there. LeBron might get a couple minutes here or there. Markeith Morris playing power forward. Uh, and then in the playoffs, honestly, it might be like the exact same lineups with Harold and AD together, but instead of Harold playing center and AD playing power forward, you flop those two. Puts them both in better positions to succeed, uh, but in the regular season, you want less of that wear and tear on AD's body. So in the regular season, I fully expect to see it not be ideal, but then once we get to the playoffs, it should work out pretty well, and, and I feel pretty confident about that. Someone asked, are, so this is from Wayne, are Harold and Schroeder 
just regular season players? No. The answer is no. And I, I actually hit, so I just hit on the Harold part. The shooter part of this I actually hit on last pod um, when Pete Zayas, Laker film room, asked, how well do you think Schroeder can defend deeper into the playoffs? He should be fine. He is good at what he's good at. Uh, if teams deeper in the playoffs, so I think the uh, what what we should infer um, is that deeper in the playoffs, that specific wording in Pete's question means if other teams try to target him in isolation in switches, how well can he defend? He is a smaller guard. He has done well in a one on one one on one perimeter defensive situations, but. As a smaller guard, can we afford to have him on the court? My question there would be, can you afford to have KCP on the court? Because it's the same situation. Same sort of guy, same sort of, uh, I, I don't know. Actually, how, how much bigger is KCP than Caruso? Or, I'm sorry, Cantavius Caldwell-Pope. Whew, taking a breath. KCP 6'5". Schroeder is 6'1". Okay. I recant everything I just said. Very different. Um, but even then, we've thought about KCP as being a smaller guy in the past and somebody that teams would pick on. Schroeder in the playoffs, Steve in the playoffs, I think he can be a liability specifically if teams are trying to target him with bigger wing players in situations where he needs to defend on the perimeter in isolation. If we're playing the Clippers and Kawhi Leonard is isolating against Dennis Schroeder, that is not a favorable situation for the Lakers. But if we think about how the team is constructed, are we willing to cut him completely from the rotation? Or do we just try to like reverse mirror his minutes with Kawhi's or Paul George's? Do you, do you just try to keep him away from the situations? That's doable. You can try to do that. Maybe he gives you 15 minutes instead of 30 minutes a game. But I think if you are to play him, there are certainly things you can do to mitigate the negative impact of teams targeting him in those situations. There are ways you can decide not to switch in actions, which the Clippers might be able to counter. Um, there are specific ways that we've seen Ty Lue teams not attack switches in the past, which was something I wrote about when Ty Lue was rumored to be going to the Lakers as their head coach in the past, um, which we can hit on at a later date. But there are ways that I see specifically for that team, and there are other teams that we could be playing where this is important. But with that team, there are ways that they haven't taken advantage of, taken advantage of that make me less worried about refusing to switch different sorts of actions and put Schroeder in those situations. But you can also do things like we saw other teams do against the Lakers this past playoffs when the Lakers were isolating with LeBron or Anthony Davis, who if we're thinking about any ISO guys out there, those are two of the best. Either on the inside or outside or both. Those who were operating at just peak, peak isolation form. And yet we saw them really struggle at times. We saw them struggle series after series because the other teams were packing the paint and at times pre-rotating on drives and uh, sending like extra stunts at the wings. So there are different things you can do. It's a matter of will the Lakers do those things and will it let them keep the right players on the court? Now, this isn't the same sort of situation as a Dwight Howard or potentially Mar Marcus Saul where you can just bench them and put a different guy in and it solves your problems. I think with Schroeder, based on the depth of this team at the guard position and the depth of this team from a playmaking standpoint, you would prefer to keep him on the court, use those workarounds, and do what you can to bolster what might be considered a weak point for his defense, which, again, overall has been pretty good. Um, but as a smaller guy, in those bigger guard, I'm sorry, wing or potentially guard isolation perimeter situations, that is a vulnerability. So, I'll say I think he will be a weakness in those situations, but not enough so that you need to bench him. And there are specific tactical things, which is really what I love to focus on with this podcast. There are specific tactical ways that the Lakers can overcome some of those weaknesses and allow him to stay on the court. All right, so we're getting into some more questions. These are more around, I'd say, development or coaching. So <laughs> Dr. Spicy asks, is Vogel the best coach for this roster? I love him, but... Which coaches in the database would be a better fit, if any? What he's referring to there is the database that we have together on every coaching staff from 2013 to 2020, looking at optimization of the talent that they have offensively, defensively, and overall, looking at the player development offensively, defensively, and overall, and looking at coaching staff's abilities to adjust in the regular season, in the playoffs. And for each of these areas, we we have more granular breakdowns. Um, that's more on the, the consulting end. We use that to help 
place players or suggest placements for players among different potential free agency destinations or different trade destinations. So what I will share with this audience is that from looking at what this roster is, think about what kind of coach you would hope to have. We have a lot of offensive talent. We have defensive talent that I think this team has a lot of defensive potential and you have the right pieces defensively for a coach that is strong within their defensive scheme and within their playoff adjustments to make a ton out of this roster. And that's what we've seen Frank Vogel be. He is about an average offensive optimization coach, but because the team is so talented offensively and because of the style of offense you naturally get with LeBron James and Anthony Davis running the show and the types of players around them, you gain less by having a really good offensive system coach on this team with this roster than you would for other potential rosters. If I'm prioritizing defense and adjustments and defensive playoff adjustments, I think Nick Nurse would be, he and his, him and his staff, he and his staff would be probably the one other one that you can make the argument for as being a better fit or maybe a better version, but not to the point where I would go out of my way to make that change. But I, I think Nick Nurse is an excellent coach. I think what he and his staff done does is some of just the best stuff out there. Um, they're so well prepared. And we see this with different coaching staffs. You need to be ready to make the adjustments you need to make before you need to make them. When you are game planning what you're going to do down three with 30 seconds left with the ball at you know, this out-of-bounds spot, you, it's, it's easier to do that and you can be more creative and you can be smarter when you have more time to think about it and you're doing it in a low-risk environment of like your couch or the coaching room in the regular season or preseason. Doing it <laughs> with the crowd roaring it, during a timeout under pressure in the moment is so much harder to make those smart decisions or doing needing to implement implement stuff, not just implement things, but need to figure out the answer and then implement it in the moment is so much harder in between games and the playoffs is so much harder than if you already have the answers because you've thought them out and then you just need to implement them. And, and given the time in between those moments, you, you're able to think about how you want to go about implementing that. So Nick Nurse and his staff are some of the best at that. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I think a staff like Budenholzer's with Atlanta in the past or Milwaukee now, they've shown to be on the opposite end of things where there are clear adjustments they can make, but they're not making them. Or they're, they're coming up with the solutions on the fly that are, they're solutions, but they're not the best solutions. So to answer that question, I think Vogel is the best, If and if he's not the best, maybe you put him behind Nick Nurse, but I would take Vogel in what Vogel's good at and what Vogel's been good at in recent years over the recent forms of most other coaches, Quint Snyder or Steve Kerr or Greg Popovich or name, name other coaches. I, I would take Vogel over them and maybe Nurse over Vogel. Nurse is really good. His teams, I just no matter where he goes and what rosters he has, he's going to make a lot of out of those teams. I just want to say that I'm a really big fan of what he does. Okay, next question from Aaron. What are the best defensive coverages to use with Montrezl Harrell? So in theory, he can have quite a, a range in terms of the coverages. I would be willing to deploy him pretty much doing anything but switching, I think. And I am open to the possibility of saying yes to switching. And we've seen him be a pretty switchy defender in the past before he got to Doc Rivers in that scheme. They used him like he was Dwight Howard in, in defensive ball screen coverages, which is silly to me. Uh, so much more can be met out of him. I, I think he's a guy you would use. If you're going to blitz players, I'm happy to have him out there. If you're going to be hard hedging or running those catch hedges like we talked about or showing and recovering or anything like that, shocking the ball, he is a guy I would be willing to have do those things. We've seen the quickness from him. We've seen his ability to recover to his man after showing hard to the ball as we went over in a clip a couple pods ago a couple streams ago, I should say. He can drop. I think there's opportunity to improve the technique for a few of these coverages for him. But just in theory, I, I, you can use anything with him other than 
the switching, at least where I am right now. I, I am open to changing that perspective, uh, but we just haven't really seen him used as a swishy defender the past couple of years. And when he has been, the results haven't been great. Um, so open to it for now, I would say. And, and again, in the regular season, we're probably just going to see him drop a bunch or we're probably going to see him used in like one or two coverages over and over again. Maybe the team experiments more. Um, in the playoffs, you use him based on what the offense shows. And based on his range, he will be a player you play in the playoffs because he can do a bunch of different things. He's not Marcus Saul where he's only going to drop or Dwight Howard where he's only going to drop or JaVale McGee where he's probably only going to drop. Or you can run some of those more aggressive coverages, but you're more vulnerable because of the lack of quickness that a guy like Harold does have and, and allows you to be less vulnerable in those situations. So he he's going to be a bigger part of the playoffs than he was in the past defensively. And he's going to be good. And we're going to hear so much praise for Vogel. And a lot of it's not going to be development. Some of it might be, but a lot of it's just going to be usage. So I don't have a, a great, you know, this is the best coverage for him just because the best coverage is the best coverage depending on what the offense is doing and who their personnel is. The fact that he can play more than one or two means that he's going to be a good ball screen defender. Josh asks, what's one aspect of their game you think key guys need to improve? Like AD, Caruso, KCP, Kuzma. This should probably be its own podcast, but I'll give a couple quick ones. For AD, I think if you can retain some of the perimeter isolation form that he had in the playoffs just just bridge the gap between regular season ad from last year and playoff ad from last year when it comes to his isolation uh efficiency from the perimeter if you can be like halfway there that's a huge upgrade for him from what he was in the regular season last season i don't think we should assume he will suddenly become like a top perimeter iso scorer like he was in the playoffs last year from an efficiency standpoint in in this regular season it's Likely more just a small sample. He was in his peak form sort of thing. But if he can continue that, that changes the way you look at AD as a player among players within this the league this year. He becomes a top three guy, a top five guy instead of a top 10, 12, 15 player. And, I, and I'm not saying that's where he is, but the discussion around him will jump substantially if he's able to add that piece to his game or keep, I should say, that piece from his last seasons, uh, from last season in the playoffs to his game this regular season. With Kuzma, we've spoken about it before. His role this season is probably going to be slotted more into a more pure movement shooter, off ball, catch and shoot, spot up, attack a closeout sort of guy. If he can improve his decision making and shot, uh, shot selection in spot up situations, and then improve his three point shooting, you know, ability, technique, form, talent. Those two things should result in a, a really good breakout year for him relative to breakout years. For Caruso, I think it's the pick and roll reads. If you can improve those, you can do a lot more with him and it opens up just the kinds of plays, the kinds of actions you can run with him out there, especially when he's the primary ball handler for a specific lineup. With KCP, I this might be a, a sneaky one, but I'm going to say ball screen defense. We should dig into this more with film so I can more clearly show where he has opportunity for improvement. Um, this is an area that because the team just in general was so good last season, we probably like you, you listening are probably not, you weren't thinking, Oh, KCP needs to be a better ball screen defender just because you didn't notice it because the team was just so good. We had those dominant rim protectors. It wasn't an issue, but if he can improve that, I think it'll be important for this season because we probably will take a step back in terms of the pick and roll defense, at least in drop coverage. This, this upcoming season, we'll, we'll see what it looks like. That may not be the case, but uh, that is an area of his game that was weaker defensively last season. I would love to see improve. Offensively, I don't want to ask KCP to be more than what the, the type of player he currently is. I think if you are to expand his game, it's better footwork on off-screen looks because he's a good stationary shooter. He's a good movement shooter. If he can be an off-screen shooter, that increases the impact he can have offensively while not putting him in, like, I don't want to say KCP run ball screens. Cause that's, that then starts to conflict. I think it, it's probably not going to be something you can do quickly, do well, and may not be the best fit with the types of lineups he's in. So you want to keep it to off ball stuff offensively or defensively, the ball screen defense, but offensively, if it's off ball, 
He's already a good spot-up shooter. I would improve probably the, the off-screen stuff. Duncan Adam asks, are you concerned about the Lakers' defensive rebounding? So for some context, we're going to turn to some of our B-Ball Index stuff, our, our, our data, our data and tools package, which you can have for 5 bucks a month or instead of the 60 year, you can get it for, I think it's like fifty-two fifty a year if you buy a, a, an annual package. Looking at that and looking at our player profiles or a leaderboards tool, which gives you data on yeah, like 550 players, something like that. Hundreds of stats for each one. They're all contextualized. So I'm, I'm not going to even list off the actual numbers. I'm just going to tell you letter grades right now. Because if I tell you 50 or 60 or 70% success rate, that probably doesn't mean anything to anyone. It certainly does not mean anything to me. I mean, I understand it, but you don't need to remember what's good and what's bad for hundreds of different stats. We handle that for you. So, rebounding. Dwight Howard last season, his real adjusted defensive rebounding rate, meaning that when he was on the court, how did his presence impact the team's ability to rebound? Was an A-. minus. He individually wasn't able to have as much of an impact because he often demanded two defensive bodies to him, which opened up opportunities for others, which leads to that overall positive impact. JaVale McGee, another guy who... He was more of an elite box out rate player. He kind of struggled to pull down his own rebounds, but you're going from those guys. You're going from Danny Green, who we've seen mix it up a little bit on the boards, um, to Marcus Saul and Montrezl Harrell. The Saul success rate on defensive rebounds, looking at what basically it's what is his win rate when he has the opportunity to grab a defensive rebound, ignoring the times when he's letting a teammate get it, when it's him versus an opponent, what is his success rate? in winning that rebound. He had a D minus rating. For Harrell, an F. If we look at their success rate plus minus, so this takes into account where are you on the court? How often do your teammates box out? Uh, how, what percentage of your rebounds are contested? All of those things. Because for AD is a good example. AD has a B success rate because he's often on the perimeter. He's, he's coming from situations where the expected success rate for him is lower. Because he's he's taking harder rebounding opportunities based on just the role he plays defensively. His defensive rebounding success rate plus minus is an A. It's elite. I think it's like 98th, 96th percentile. And his real adjusted defensive rebounding rate, his impact on the team was also an A. For, who was I going to say? For Gasol, he had that D minus success rate. Harrell had the F success rate. For a success rate plus minus, both of them are an F. They're both underperforming what we would expect someone in their situation to be able to do. In terms of the team impact, that real adjusted defensive rebounding rate, Gasol was a C minus, Harrell was a D. So I see a clear drop off going to those two. But I think you also add Wes Matthews, who was uh, sixth in terms of box out rate among guards this past season. Caruso is fourth, by the way. Matthews had a C plus success rate, but a B success rate plus minus. He had an A real adjusted defensive rebounding rate. He's going to help the team. AD is going to continue being really good as a rebounder. LeBron is going to be able to crash the boards and rebound. Overall, I think the Lakers take a step back, but I'm not concerned about it in a, a huge way that I think is going to hurt the team in the playoffs. Because I see Gasol as somebody that, if you're playing a team that offensive rebounds really well, he might not be in there. Or in certain playoff series, he may not be playing at all. Harrell is somebody that his numbers are going to end up looking better. Maybe not this regular season. They might get a little bit better. But in the playoffs, assuming he plays power forward instead of center like he did last season and probably will this regular season, his numbers should look better because he'll have better matchups. So I think it's a step back. I don't think it's enough of a step back to seriously hurt the team. But here and there, we will see it materialize. So keep an eye on that as well. Benjamin asks, what improvements can our coaching staff make in year two to improve, or I'm sorry, to optimize our offensive efficiency? Because they did a pretty damn good job on defense in year one. I would agree with that. <coughs> I'd say there are three key things. The first one would be to use, who, who would you say? We're going to say Matthews, KCP, and Schroeder off-ball via different types of screens. Not all the same. Those are three different kinds of off-ball players, but using them in the right actions off ball to drag away help defense from LeBron from AD whether they're in ball screens isolation or post-ups 
that is going to be key. That's a big improvement the team can make. Last season, there was way too much standing around. And in the playoffs, we saw teams pick on that. This is what I would call freelance offense. We're not running a set play, but we just as an offense, as a principle, know that when LeBron is isolated, we are going to run a split cut. Or not a split cut. We are going to run a flare screen. Or we're going to run a pin in flare screen weak side. Or if we know there's a ball screen happening, we know we're going to run a pin down weak side or, or something. That is freelance offense. The best offenses tend to do this pretty well. This is something the Warriors have been really good at for a while. And it matters a ton. Because instead of having one primary scoring you know, option with your primary action and just having guys stand around weak side, you now have multiple things happening at the same time. We have good enough playmakers from those situations that they'll be able to find the players. If you make it a principle, and it's not just like every now and then you do this, the passing for it isn't all that difficult because you still know where guys are going to be. They're moving, but you know where they're going to be. So it's still a relatively easy read, and it makes the situation easier for those on-ball players, again, whether in a ball screen, isolation, or a post-up, because by having the weak side action, you drag away help defense. You clear the lane. You open up the lane for cuts from other players. You open up the lane for drives. You make that post up a one-on-one instead of a one-on-two or a one-on-one and a half. That is important. Freelance offense. That's number one. Number two. Another thing, I mean, this is kind of the same sort of thing, but I, I think with LeBron, AD, and Marcus Saw, I want to use them more as facilitators from the high post and from the low post for the first two, not as much Gasol. Using split cuts. I want split cuts all day long. When there's a post-up, I want to split cut. This is another form of freelance offense, but it's a, a more specific one. It creates two good scoring opportunities quickly, drags away help, def- excuse me, help defense, and you're going to have the types of players on this team you want to get cutting opportunities. AD cutting, great. LeBron cutting, fantastic. Schroeder cutting, okay. Alex Caruso cutting, great. Kuzma cutting, great. These are things we want. Wes, Wes Matthews, so smart with these. Use that specific action. So I don't know if you want to group that in with the first answer or make it its its own. And then the third one, or maybe second, is more early offensive attacks. Last season, we saw the team run up the court. You have transition if it's there. If it's not there, we're going to get into half-court offense. And that's when you become less efficient. The in-between piece of that, your secondary break, is attacking the defense before the defense is set, but not quite in like a, a 3v2 or 2v1 or something. More early offense, more secondary break attacking. And there are a couple ways you can do this. So. Delay sets, they're good. Delay is, we're going to say, we're going to go five out and Marcus Saul is on the court and he's going to fill the top of the key. You drive the ball up the wing, pass it to Gasol, and then on both sides of Gasol, you've got cutting and screening actions. That's smart. You can run pistol action. Pistol action. And we should, I should grab some film with these on the next stream. Pistol action, maybe not next stream, but one of the streams. Pistol action is an action that a lot of teams use where you can take a player like LeBron James get him the ball just inside the three-point line on the wing and then run a guy like Schroeder or Casey, or maybe not KCP, but Schroeder would be a good example. Have Schroeder run over, like behind him essentially, over him uh, towards the corner. Maybe he curls to the rim, maybe he just runs to the corner for a potential handoff or you fake that handoff and let LeBron drive or you have Schroeder go set a pin down for the guy standing in the corner. There are different things you do um, with LeBron catching the ball between I guess like sort of the lane line and the three-point line somewhere in that range below the free throw line. Uh, You want to look to to run sets like that with that pistol action. Attacking in secondary breaks also makes the defense vulnerable to quick down screens, quick pin downs, or to flare screens, or to flat uh, ball screens, butt ball screens, where you set the screen not on the side of the ball handler's defender, but behind them and really let that ball handler get downhill. And you can set these pretty high up. You can set these at half court. Those types of actions work well in secondary breaks. And I want to see more of it because we didn't see enough of it last season. And it's another way to create really easy offenses. And essentially, in some cases, almost create transition out of what was just kind of almost turning into half court offense. The next question, and this is uh, an interesting one that that I will need to do some more thinking about and we'll probably cover in in bigger detail uh, between Tom and I both later on, probably before the season starts, but not this week, is which opponents present the toughest challenge for the Lakers as constructed? How, and then his the second part of his question, no longer applies. How would we use the remaining roster spots to address needs? Can't quite do that anymore. We got Quinn Cook. 
but which opponents present the toughest challenge for the Lakers as constructed? I think there are four teams. And there might be others. But for right now, there are four teams I'm really keeping an eye on. The Warriors aren't one of them. I think the Warriors might struggle to make the playoffs at all. The Bucks, in theory, are a really tough challenge. Last season, they were already really, really, really good. You don't do what they did in the regular season by not being good. But year after year, those Budenholzer teams have underperformed in the playoffs. And last season, if we look at, we, we see this on the film, and you can see it in the numbers. If you look at the scheme variance that different teams ran last season, are you running the same defense every single game? Are you changing things up? Just on the defensive end, not even looking at offense, which is another area they were weak, just defensively. How variable was that Milwaukee defense? They were dead last. The Lakers were first, and they were up there with teams like Miami. That matters, and that mattered last year, and that's been just a trend in general with with those Milwaukee teams, or Budenholzer's staff specifically, is a weaker ability to make adjustments and make the right adjustments. So for that reason, it's probably always the type of team to bet against in the playoffs with that coaching staff because there's probably value uh, there. But in theory, this that team should be a good team that should be a, a tough challenge for the Lakers. I'd say a healthy Miami should also be a tough team to beat. They were already a hard team to beat, and they weren't even healthy last season. But in addition to being well-coached, being a team that will attack your weaknesses in the playoffs, offensively, defensively, they're really smart. They've also added a point-of-attack defender in Bradley and a wing stopper, stopper in Harkless into what they already had. And the thing is, like, you don't say, oh, man, like, Mo Harkless, go stop LeBron James, and, and like, that's the answer. But it's better than Tyler Hero or uh, Duncan Robinson needing to take on that job or Goran Dragic trying to take on the job. Like, they have Jimmy Butler. Other Outside of Jimmy Butler, they had a ton of weak perimeter defenders this past season. And they just added a couple guys who offensively can fit into what they're doing. And I think they'll be able to make a good bit out of those players offensively. Defensively, they're a clear step up from the incumbents, what they already have. They don't need to be A-caliber wing stoppers or point-of-attack defenders. But if they're, I don't know, we'll say, let's just say they're C-pluses to B-minuses to Bs. If you're going from a D to a B, that's a big jump. So that should be impactful. I'm looking forward to seeing what a healthy Miami team looks like in the playoffs. They should be scary. And they have the the coaching side of this in their favor, as opposed to Milwaukee, where it's kind of the opposite, where the roster looks uh, a bit worrisome, but the coaching side of it makes you feel a little bit more comfortable. I think the Clippers should also be a team that's better this year than they were last season for a few reasons. One, you probably, I mean, it's hard to have a more toxic environment than they did last season for this season. Hopefully between the new coaching staff and, and just figuring that out more time together on court chemistry, off court chemistry, this team should be in a better place Two, looking at the coaching and, and lose staffs in general. Cause it's not one person. It's not, Oh, Ty Lue was on the bench. Uh, everything that he has to offer would have materialized on doc, Robert, doc rivers, staffs. That's not quite the case. One, because when you're an assistant coach, you're kind of fitting into what that head coach is doing. And uh, some of it for selfish reasons, because you know, eventually you're going to get your shot as a head coach and you want to, you know, use your stuff then. Um, But two, because, you you know, you kind of fall in line, do your job from an adjustment standpoint, from a scheme standpoint, offensively and defensively. I believe Ty Lue and what he brings, and he's brought a specific style so far from what we've seen from him with the LeBron Cavs teams and with the Cavs teams without LeBron, which were a much worse fit for what he does. I think the Clippers will be a good fit with that. And the fact that his he has his own staff, it's not just him, that means that you're going to see more of what we saw from him in the past, which was good optimization on, on both ends of the court. And in specific ways that we'll dig into more if we get to that point, and, and I'm sure we'll have opportunities later this season, but if Lou stays on brand, he should help with the scheme a ton. He should help with the playoff adjustments because they changed things. They just didn't quite make the right changes at times. Uh, I think they're constructed a bit better. I think adding Batum and, and Ibaka, which is my third point, Batum and Ibaka, who are, I think, both really nice potential playoff pieces, I think they should help in defending the Lakers. I think they should both help offensively. They should unlock things that schematically as a defense, they, they I think, tie your hands at times based on what you might want to do. They're both guys who can do a little bit of playmaking, which is interesting. They can both space the floor. So 
I really like the Clippers from a in terms of them being better this season than they were last season. I think that is a dangerous team. That's a team to keep an eye on. The last team and one that I think has a bit more variance than the others is the Nets. They should be really good. But you have Kevin Durant coming off in what an Achilles injury. That's not something people generally recover a ton to. And Kevin Durant and take this comp with for for what I'm trying to say it is. If you take away Kevin Durant's ability to get to the rim, which has been a big strength of his and is something that should be impacted by the injury he just had. Even healthy, coming off an Achilles injury generally takes away the ability for you to get to the rim. Looking at his skill set, he starts to profile like a Chris Middleton, which is still a good player. I think Kevin Durant can be still a top player, but maybe he's the 15th best player in the NBA instead of a top three player in the NBA. That changes the, the outlook for this team. But he and Kyrie, that bring, brings you a bunch of offense. I think having uh, Mike D'Antoni run the offensive scheme, which is what they're going to be doing, allows them to, I think it fits their personnel pretty well. Uh, defensively, we'll see what they end up doing. But offensively, you can even go small with KD or Jeff Green at the five. Or you can be big with uh, DeAndre Jordan or uh, Jared Allen at center. I think they have the opportunity to be versatile in the playoffs based on who they have on the court. I think they have lots of depth scoring with Dinwiddie, with Harris, with Levert adding offense outside of some of those top top dogs. They have roll threats. They have pick and pop threats. They have a lot of options. I think what the coaching staff ends up doing will help either materialize the potential this team has or might let us see a team that isn't quite what they could be. So a few things need to click into place. I think they may not be done making moves. We might see them active around the trade deadline. We'll have to see how KD looks. I want to see how they run their defense over the first couple of months. All of those things will tell us a lot about their potential, but they have, at least right now, I would say they have the potential to be a team that gives you trouble in the playoffs. They're not there yet. We haven't seen them see how all the pieces fit together, but they should have the right deck of cards to make a pretty challenging roster. Those are the teams that I, I'm looking at more than some others. There are some others I like. We'll get to them another time. I, I think Tom and I are going to go through, now that all the, the things are in place, you know, free agency and the draft and everything, once uh, preseason gets started, we see what teams actually look like. Then we'll dig into how the, the outlook in the West looks like, maybe what the East looks like. How do the Lakers fit in from a tier standpoint? What are those tiers? Uh, I, I didn't. I was thinking about doing that earlier, but until the draft and free agency happens, I don't think it makes a, a ton of sense because you're just trying to guess for a bunch. So, for all the work that'll take, uh, I'd be happy to do that before the regular season starts, but probably sometime during preseason. So we'll we'll get to that. But for now, that's just a little taste test of some of the analysis you might get to see, and that was incredibly high level. Those are the questions we had. The only other questions we didn't answer from last time had to do with free agency and if the Lakers should look to add another traditional big or, you know, are they, are we too short or what should we do with that last roster spot? The Lakers brought in Quinn cook. I think ball handling was something they could use. So he could be an off ball shooter. He can handle the ball a little bit, not quite like a, a ball screen sort of guy. So a, a step down from like a Napier um, or McLaughlin. Uh, and those guys are also probably better defenders than Quinn cook, honestly, um, or around the same. So I, I would have leaned them over him. I see the value with Cook as a locker room guy, which I say I see the value. I hear about the value. I, I am not able to personally see the value it adds, not because I don't believe in it, but because from my perspective as an outsider looking in, it's it's hard to make those things tangible. It's not an on-court thing I can see with data or with film. So if it's there and it matters and it'll continue to be there, that's good. And that'll help the team. And I'm happy with that. I can support that. I can support those types of decisions. It's, uh, I, I think there were some on-court things you could look to address with the ball handling. Uh, in terms of adding a big man, it would have been to slot Harrell into a power forward spot. But after going through the exercise that we did last pod and stream, where we went through that rotation map, I realized that if you do add another big, the minutes for the big men don't make a whole lot of sense for this team. I think you're just better off playing Harrell at center during the regular season. You'll still make the playoffs just fine. And then in the playoffs, you then slot guys into roles that are better for them. So that is uh, it in terms of the questions we have gotten today. Again, we prioritize the questions from the Discord. If you want to join the Discord and chat, draft, free agency, preseason, all that stuff with us, we've done some specific streams just for that audience. Um, I've shared some materials, some PowerPoints, some data that you're not going to get publicly um, 
just from my Twitter. Uh, basically, t- t- Tim and Tom on demand. Um, <laughs> like, if you ask a question at like 6 p.m. or 4 a.m., you're probably going to get an answer sooner than if you were to ask on Twitter. Uh, so if you want to join that and be part of that community of, I think we might have like 80 people in there now, all you have to do is DM me a five-star review of the podcast. Uh, if you have Apple Podcasts, that's the preferred way. If you do not have Apple Podcasts, you use Spotify or Stitcher or something else, you can go ahead and use iTunes instead. In lieu of that, I would be willing to accept since, you know, it, it helps helps me out on the B-Ball Index side. If you're a fan of us and you enjoy the podcast, you listen, you don't listen on Apple, but you want to support and you want to join that community, go ahead and buy one of our $5 data and tools packages for B-Ball Index. Um, we end up donating some of that money every month anyway, um, but it, helping it, provide some money there will help us advance the the time and the, and the type of data that we're able to provide and obviously helps this community through this podcast because we give you guys a lot of that anyway. If you want to support that, buy it just even a month, f- the $5 data and tools package and DM me a screenshot of that and I'll get you set up in the Discord or if you buy that annual package, even better. Um, it's per month cheaper for you. You essentially get two months free, I believe is how I have it set up or a month and a half free. Um, either of those options, that can be an alternative way to hop in that discord. If, uh, you are not an iTunes or Apple user. So that is it. We're at an hour mark. I am Cranjus McBasketball. You know me as Tim. I guess it's the other way around. Um, find me on Twitter at Tim underscore MBA. Find Tom on Twitter at creative destroyer. Uh, make sure to like, and subscribe. If you want to see the Twitch stream replays you can see them on twitch you can also see them on youtube go check out my youtube page cranjus basketball uh so lots of options to see the same stuff again you can go use that uh rotation maps tool as well lots out there we're trying to have fun we're trying to get excited for the season and it's not too hard to do so for tom uh who wasn't able to make it today for the lakers exceptionalism pod i am tim and i hope you have a great rest of your day